Hello everyone. It's a privilege for me to be able to take part in this teaching series looking at some of the Psalms. We're looking at Psalm chapter 2. We know from the New Testament that it was written by David. And actually it's based on similar psalms or songs, if you like, that other nations would have had. Other nations would have had songs about their kings and how their kings were appointed by the God that they worshipped. And some of those nations would have said, the gods have given us a son. Uh, our king is a son of the gods that we worship. And so this psalm uses similar language. God always speaks to us using themes, pictures, words that we understand. And this psalm is no different from that. We will uh, look at it a section at a time and make comment and then say, well, what does this teach us about how we can pray? So the first three verses set the scene for us. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So this song begins with a question. Why are the nations raging? And it's a question which doesn't really need answering because we know why they are raging. Uh, the Bible has made it clear right from the beginning in the story of creation in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They don't follow him. They don't follow his way of living. They don't follow the rules he gives them. They rebel against him. And that carries on right the way through the Old Testament, story after story of how God makes his will clear that mankind doesn't listen and thinks they know better and rebels against God. And that is what is happening here. That's what David is writing about. And the question really um, is like a rhetorical question because the psalm goes on to talk about God's might and his power. And if God is so powerful and so mighty, then why are the nations raging? What do they hope to gain? That's what's going on in this psalm. <clears throat> so let's see that as we read verses 4 to 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That's at the nations who are conspiring against him. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is talking about God's power and might. He laughs because the strength of the nations, all their armies, are nothing to him. We know that God created everything. He created the mountain that his king is on. So a few nations coming against God, what do they hope to achieve? God is almighty and all-powerful. So he doesn't fear the nations threatening him. And, very important, he has his king in place on the earth. That's David. You see, the way that God was working was that he had called uh, Abraham to follow him. We read this back in Genesis and said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. 
Um, and we see as the story develops that God gives that nation, which we call Israel today, he gives them his laws, his ways to live, to be merciful, to live righteously, to make sacrifices when they sin, um, to worship him in the temple. And God's plan is to have a people that follow him and through their example, other nations in their wickedness and evil will turn from the gods they're worshipping and follow the true God. And God raises up a king at this point in the story, King David, and gives David might and strength in battle, not because God loves war, but because the nations want to fight and want to come against God. So God raises up a king, anoints him, makes him like a great warrior who will defeat the other nations and hopefully the nations will see they can't win and they will turn to God. As I said at the beginning, God is using the language that those nations will understand, the language of might and battle and armies, not because God loves that, but because they're so evil and wicked, they're living in that way. So God says, let's use the things that they think are great. Let's use them against them. And then they'll see that actually there is only one God and his way is best. So God is laughing at the nations because of his might and strength and saying, I have a king in place and you won't be able to defeat him. It goes on and says, verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. This is David speaking now. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. You see, with God's power, David can defeat the nations who come against God and his people. And as I said, the hope is that people will witness the power of God in battle and stop rebelling against him and instead worship him and follow his ways. And this becomes even clearer as we read the conclusion of the psalm, verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment blessed are all who take refuge in him it's really important that we see and understand this psalm this song finishes with an appeal god will bring judgment if the nations continue to rebel and continue to challenge is king. But God is saying it doesn't have to be this way. If this king come against you in battle, he will destroy you. It says in some versions, uh, you will be crushed. It says here, they will be broken like pottery. But God is saying it doesn't have to be this way. If you kiss the son, embrace him, pledge loyalty to him as a sign of pledging loyalty to God and receiving his ways, his laws. If you become loyal to him, then God will become a refuge, a place of protection 
instead of destruction. You see, we, God always desires mercy rather than judgment. This psalm talks about judgment and says God has a king in place. God has anointed him and he will defeat you in battle. But rather than fight, turn to God. Take refuge in him. Find mercy. Again and again in scripture, we see that God prefers mercy to judgment. So that's an overview, a summary of the psalm. How then does it help us pray today? The nations are still in uproar. People are still coming against God and his people, conspiring against him. Well, actually, we have an example of how to pray this psalm in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, the disciples pray a prayer based on this psalm. You can read the story in Acts chapter 4. Two of the disciples heal someone, uh, someone who is paralysed. They heal him. They preach in the name of Jesus. The authorities arrest them and question them, interrogate them, and then say to them, you cannot preach Jesus anymore. Do not do this. Be quiet. Stop preaching him. Stop healing people. Those two disciples return to the rest of the disciples and say, tell them what's happened and how they were arrested and how the rulers and authorities are conspiring against them. And what's very sad is, is that these authorities are God's people. They're meant to be the ones who received Jesus, but sadly they didn't. And then we read how the disciples pray in response to this arrest and this intimidation. So verse 24 of Acts 4 says this, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The disciples' prayer is quoting from Psalm 2. They are praying based on the truth in this psalm. Why? Because the authorities and the rulers are coming against God's King, Jesus. The disciples are proclaiming Jesus as God's anointed King and they're healing people in the power of the name of Jesus. You see, the disciples had realised that this psalm was about David initially, but ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus. David did eventually die. Sadly, God's people didn't keep following him. They too received judgment. David's kingdom came to an end. And the psalm talks about how the king, God's son, will not be defeated. So it wasn't ultimately fulfilled in David, it was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But this wasn't easy for the disciples to understand at first, until Jesus' resurrection. You see, in Psalm 2, God's anointed king will destroy the kings and rulers who come against God and come against his people. Jesus didn't do this. He didn't come against Rome. He didn't have an army. He didn't sit on an earthly throne. He didn't have military might. But the disciples, after the resurrection, came to understand that Jesus had come to destroy the ultimate enemy, 
the power of evil in human hearts and the power of death. That's why he came. And they understood that he was God's son and God's king. And we have many examples of this in the Gospels, but just to look at uh, some that specifically uh, are relevant to Psalm 2. In Matthew chapter 3, we read the story of when Jesus was baptised. And after he's baptised, it says God speaks and says that Jesus is his son. And people who'd have witnessed this, people who were there or knew this story, would have thought of Psalm 2. They'd have thought of other Old Testament scriptures too, but they would know Psalm 2 very well. God saying, here, this is my son. Straight after this, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And we read about this in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted by Satan. And in one of the temptations, Satan says to him, if you worship me, I will give you the nations of the world. Psalm 2 talks about how the Son, God's King, will inherit the nations. Satan knew this. So Satan is referring to Psalm 2 and saying, Jesus, you worship me, you can have the nations. As we know, Jesus didn't listen. And Jesus used scripture uh, against Satan and said, we shall not worship anyone else other than God alone. Jesus knew that he would inherit the nations, but it wouldn't come by listening to Satan. And then we see very powerfully that with Jesus' death, the understanding of what victory for God's king looks like is turned upside down. You see, in the story, the son is kissed. He is embraced, but it's by his betrayer, Judas. Judas says <coughs> to the people that he is going to betray Jesus to that he will give Jesus a kiss. That's how they know who they are to arrest. Psalm 2 talks about how the enemies of God will be broken to pieces. Some versions, as I said earlier, it says they will be crushed. But with the fulfilment of this psalm in Jesus, it's Jesus who is crushed. The king stands in the place of the enemies in order to bring God's victory. It's turned upside down. It's not about military might and power and strength. It's about sacrifice and laying down his life. And then after the resurrection, after the victory over death, Jesus wants the nations as his inheritance. And this looks like him saying to his disciples, now go into all the world, go to the nations, tell them what you've seen, what you've heard, make disciples, tell them the good news that God has a king. His name is Jesus. Death has been defeated. All of this is fulfilling Psalm 2, but in a very different way to how David would have heard it. In Acts, the disciples have understood that this psalm is fulfilled not by military might and the conquest of armies, but by proclaiming the good news of Jesus, healing the sick, and, if necessary, laying down their lives as Jesus did. So let's listen to how they finish their prayer. 
Acts 4, verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They're still talking about Psalm 2 there. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Notice the disciples don't pray for the enemies to be overthrown. They don't pray for God to judge their enemies. They don't pray for their own protection. They don't say, God, please stop us from being arrested. Stop us from being put in prison. Rather, they ask God for courage and boldness to keep speaking and proclaiming Jesus as God's anointed king. They know that the victory that is needed is for people to receive forgiveness and to be restored to relationship with God and know him as their refuge, their protection. This is the only way that wickedness, sin and evil will be overcome. The good news of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And so the disciples aren't praying for their own protection. They're praying for boldness to keep making this good news known. When you understand how the disciples prayed Psalm 2, it becomes very challenging because we see that the nations are still in uproar. They still rebel against God. But the disciples still wanted to proclaim the name of his King Jesus, and so should we. They were calling the nations to obey him, even though the nations were plotting and conspiring against him. That's what Jesus has sent them to do. And so they were asking for boldness and courage so they could fulfill that. And here's the challenging bit. Even if it cost them their lives, even if it meant them having to lay their lives down, which in the end, every single one of them did. And they were able to pray like this because they did not fear death. They knew there was resurrection. They had seen Jesus defeat death and they knew that this would be true for them as well. So they prayed for boldness, they prayed for courage so they could keep making Jesus known. And God answered them by filling them with his Holy Spirit, filling them with power. So to conclude, how do we pray when the nations rage? How do we pray when people around us oppose God? Don't believe in him. Don't believe in the way of Jesus. Don't believe that Jesus is alive. We pray for the good news of Jesus to be known. We ask God that he would draw people to him, that they would find him as their refuge, that they would seek him for forgiveness. And we don't just pray that this will happen. We also pray that we will help make it happen, that we will have courage to speak about Jesus Courage to love our enemies, courage to serve them, courage to be a witness to the things Jesus has done in our lives and for us. We pray for boldness and courage that we will not be intimidated by the world and by people who tell us to be quiet and by people to tell us it's just a private thing, your faith or your religion. And we pray 
expecting God to answer, filling us with his spirit, filling us with strength, filling us with boldness, because we know the truth. Jesus is king. He has defeated death. He is alive and is a king of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. And this needs to be told. Hallelujah.